Ready? Born ready. Hello and welcome back. You are tuning in to Where the Party At. This is your political podcast. Tune in for everything that's happening in Atlanta, Georgia, and beyond. So up on the docket today, let's get right into it. We're going to go into the Georgia General Assembly and give you guys an update on what's happening there. As you all know, January through about the end of March, the Georgia General Assembly is, um, they meet every year around that time frame for 40 days and 40 nights. So a couple of controversial bills that are making their way through the session. Uh, number one, guaranteeing parental involvement in their child's education. This is legitimately a bill, which I'm kind of confused by because I remember growing up, my parents were pretty involved in my education and If they didn't like something that was going on in the school, they showed up and made that clear. Uh, Another bill, uh, it hasn't made it all the way through, but it probably will because it is an election year. Uh, This is a bill that would ban Georgia women from receiving abortion-inducing drugs by mail. Uh, If you recall, a couple years ago, Georgia passed one of the strictest uh, anti-abortion laws in the country. Not quite as strict as Texas, but certainly pretty doggone close. Another one, and this is what I'm going to highlight, uh, is the Divisive Concepts Bill that addresses critical race theory. And I want to give a shout out to my reporter at Atlanta Civic Circle, Tammy Joyner, who wrote a great article about this and how this would impact teachers and schools. Uh, but first, take a listen to what the bill's sponsor, Representative Will Wade, said on Political Breakfast. Well, and, and back to the issue that you say it's a graduate level class. And so why is it in the K-12 discussion? Why, why are we pushing it in, in, in that direction? And at a time, Lisa, when there's no critical race theory being taught in any K-12 through schools in Georgia. Uh, I want to take that, that in two parts, okay, Theron? Yes, there is not a class called critical race theory in the schools. But what's happened is, and some parents have brought to me examples, I actually shared it with the committee members, and I'm happy to get that information to you guys where you can see evidence that was provided to me as a sponsor of the bill of examples where teachers individually were using what they learned in some of their graduate classes, in some of their master's classes, even some in their doctoral programs, and they were circumventing their local curriculum, taking the Georgia standards and using their lens to try to teach children that, hey, this is how you should feel. And, and, and honestly, we're politically prophetizing their belief system, not, hey, let's talk about the history as the history was. Is it rampant? No. Is it widespread? No. But if you look at my bill and you lay out each of the, the divisive concepts, I do not believe, and I've talked to dozens of Democrats, they agree almost unanimously that everything I've laid out is a divisive concept and that we should not teach children these ideas. 
they they agree. There's some that actually have an argument about whether or not America is a fundamentally racist nation. Um, I happen to believe that we're not. I can acknowledge that there's a big difference between is and was. Um, that's a separate argument. Um, but I believe for us as Americans that we can acknowledge if we want to end racism, I mean, that is my ultimate goal. I want us to be a society that says, you know, we ended polio, which was a scourge in our nation's history. Racism is a scourge in our nation's history. Let's end it. Let's come together as brothers and sisters and teach all of our children that they all have an opportunity to reach their highest potential, no matter the color of their skin, no matter who their parents are, how their last name is spelled, whether they live in a a Buckhead zip code, or if they live in the other Buckhead of Georgia that has a different wealth status than that city of Atlanta does, none of that should matter. And I, and that's, that's what I believe. And so I always ask people, well, do you want us to teach critical race theory in K-12? What's your problem with me preventing that happening? But this is not about CRT. This is about the greater divisive concepts that have continually funneled people that are raising money off of the divisions in our nation over race. And we have to push back against that issue. One thing I want to point out here is I think that it's the sort of thing you only get on political breakfast in this state. So politics is all about power. And Georgia Republican lawmakers are writing bills that are focused on keeping their political party in power, whether it's uh, having a conversation about critical race theory, which again was something that's occurring at the collegiate level, not through K through 12 or and enshrining into law, the parents ability to be involved in their child's education. Again, just things that uh, making uh, an issue where there's not one. Um, so UGA professor, Charles Bullock, who is one of the most respected political scientists in the state he said this uh, recently to a news outlet, and I quote, Republicans see the handwriting on the wall. They see that Georgia is not a red, red state anymore. And so I believe that's why, and this is Saba talking, me talking here. I think that's why you see Republicans pushing uh, new maps in Cobb County and Gwinnett County and in Augusta, Richmond, all without the support of the local delegation. And let me add, this isn't just happening in Georgia. This is happening across the country. And it's also why you see uh, Governor Brian Kemp really flexing his political muscle. So let me just take a second to talk about kind of what's happening with Kemp. Um, and by the way, I can't help but wonder, we obviously are in an election year. If Kemp were not being challenged by David Perdue in the primary, how different of a Republican governor would he be today? Um, Kemp has charted a course for Purdue's cousin and the former governor of the state, Sonny Purdue, to become the next chancellor of the University System of Georgia. He has also just appointed a 30-something-year-old conservative judge to the state Supreme Court. And I should add that he bypassed the, um, the state bar and in making that appointment and that pick. Usually the state bar recommends people, and this is a way to keep it nonpartisan. Uh, and another thing, he's told parents that they don't have to adhere to a school district's mask mandate. So these are all just a few highlights. These are all just a few highlights of things that Kemp has been up to lately. And, you know, I, I know that Democrats are mad as hell about all the things that Kemp has been doing. But 
If you compare Kemp to Florida governor and possible 2024 Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis, <clears throat> Kemp is almost looking like a moderate Republican, which I know people would, would be shocked to hear that. Um, so like Kemp, DeSantis also barely won his election. Uh, he barely beat out a black individual, a black Democrat to become governor. Also like Kemp, DeSantis is up for re-election this year, uh, but DeSantis has a much easier path to victory than Kemp. Here's a couple things that DeSantis is doing. He is backing a bill that would strip $200 million in education funding from Democratic counties that defy his executive order of banning mask mandates in schools. And then I should make clear on this, he's not saying that the schools won't get money, but he's stripping the the salaries of the administrators of those schools. And another thing, uh, he's uh, in support of this, quote, don't say gay bill that's, uh, that the state legislator in Florida is working through. And it basically says that teachers can't talk about LGBT stuff in the classroom um, if asked by a student, right? And the whole thing is saying, like, you can't talk about this unless it's age appropriate. But if I'm a teacher and there's this bill, I'm probably just going to err on the side of caution and not say anything at all, right? And then another thing, uh, he has refused to say yes or no and if the 2020 election was rigged. Uh, those are, you know, that last one in particular, Kemp has certainly not taken that posture. So ultimately, I think it's going to be a hell of a fight for Democrats to beat Kemp um, because he's not going as far right as folks like DeSantis. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible, uh, but ultimately this election will come down to turnout. And I also think it's really going to come out to where do independent voters end up, right? So do independent voters uh, take a look at some of the things that have happened in this legislative session, some of the things that Kemp has said, and do they go for him, assuming he is indeed, uh, you know, gets through the primary, or do they go for Stacey Abrams? We'll see. Um, so speaking of elections and kind of voter turnout and all that, so last year in Georgia, the Lincoln County Elections Board, they outlined a plan to close six of their seven polling precincts, meaning there would only be one precinct for the entire county. Now, for some voters, that own, that one precinct will be almost 23 miles away. So that's a 46-mile round trip. Let me give you a comparison. So say you are driving, you're at the Atlanta airport. That's like driving from the Atlanta airport to the Battery in Cobb County just to go vote. That's about 23 <laughs> miles. That's insane to think about, right? So the board was supposed to vote on this plan last week but they decided to postpone it. Now, when they originally announced the plans, there was a huge uproar. Local residents started a petition asking to keep those precincts open, and they gathered more than 600 signatures. Now, under state law, if at least 20% of voters in an affected precinct register their opposition, in other words, they make a petition, the board cannot take action on that change. So now the board is reviewing the signatures. They're trying to see how many of those are valid. Now, the primary is in May, so the election staff has to be prepared and know how to administer this election. Are they administering it with one precinct or are they administering it with all precincts? Because that's obviously, uh, it takes a lot of time. We're already in late February. 
So th that's going to be a lot of work and effort for the election staff. And then the last thing about this, if Republicans are pro-voter participation, they aren't giving folks a reason to believe them when you're pushing for plans like this one in Lincoln County. So why do I say that? And maybe I should say voters are pro-voter, Republicans rather, are for voter participation as long as it's their party. That's, I think, the distinction here. So why am I saying this? Uh, the Lincoln County Board of Elections used to be equally made up of Republicans and Democrats. But when Senate Bill 202 passed last year, that changed. It allowed state lawmakers to remove existing board members of elections boards. And that happened in Lincoln County. So the old board was removed and the rules were changed as to who could appoint the five-member board. So the county commission, which is Republican-led, gets three of those votes three of those seats. So that assumes that the commission, the county commission is Republican. So you're, the assumption is that they're only appointing, they're only going to appoint Republicans, meaning that they are always in the majority. And what best practice is, is for your, your election board to always be bipartisan equally. You have an equal amount of Democrats and an equal amount of Republicans. So there's a reason why you want that. I mean, the whole point of this, your elections board, you want them to instill trust and for the, the voters to know that when they vote, their vote is counted, their vote is counted correctly. And when that doesn't happen, you have what we've been dealing with since the 2022 election is people saying election was stolen, there's mistrust, and it just gets worse and worse uh, over time, unfortunately. So Lincoln County is one to watch. I know uh, a number of Democratic organizations are, are doing a lot of work on the ground there to try to make sure that those seven precincts stay open. Again, this is 2022, an election year. You've got all the statewide offices that are up. You also have the Senate seat. And so easy access to voting is paramount for both parties, not just one over the other. All right, so everyone's complaining about gas prices, right? Marta Smarta, by the way. So Senator Raphael Warnock and a few other senators are pushing to temporarily pause the federal gas tax. Now, when you go to the pump, you pay about 18 cents on the gallon in a federal gas tax every single time. Now, before you flip out and say, oh my God, 18 cents is so much, let me tell you, the gas tax has been 18 cents since 1993. Now, show me one thing that's been the same price for almost 30 years. So the gas tax is worth today about 45% less than it was in 1993. So that means we're not funding federal transportation projects at the rate that we should and could because the gas tax hasn't been changed. So if the gas tax was tied to inflation, what it actually should be today is 33 cents per gallon, not 18. Um, and then one last thing about the current gas tax is because we have never increased it since, the, since 93, we're not bringing in enough money to actually fund the transportation projects that we're already doing. So that means that money has to, the extra money has to come in from elsewhere. So 
tying the gas tax to inflation means that it's tied to the cost of living, right? So the cost of construction has increased, the cost of materials has increased. So naturally, it would make sense to tie the gas tax to the cost of living. Now, Democrats want to stop the gas tax, the, the federal gas tax, until January of next year. Is this an election tactic? Maybe. I mean, you know, making it January of next year means that they've gotten through the midterms, right? The election's in November. And so, okay. And then you get a little break because of December. Folks are spending money for the holidays. So now remember in, what was that? I guess that was 2020 when the first stimulus check went out and Trump made sure that he, his signature was on those checks. And, you know, Democrats are like, oh, this is such an election year stunt, blah, blah, blah. And he did make sure those checks got into your bank accounts before election day. Uh, but, you know, the reality is folks are spending more and more. Everything is costing more and more. Utility costs way up. Food costs way up. Clothing costs up. Housing costs all the way up. Nothing can stop me. I'm all the way up. All the way up. So ultimately, pausing the gas tax will give folks an immediate relief, right? And that's especially helpful for working and lower income families who are most impacted by that cost savings. Uh, but in the long term, if we're actually going to fix America's infrastructure, the reality is we actually need to raise the gas tax. Um, and by raising it, I mean, that's basically doubling it just to get it to where, you know, the projects that need to be funded could be funded. And so, Will it happen to be determined? Republicans are, again, kind of raising hell and saying, well, this is just an election year tactic. But at the end of the day, if you pause it and you're helping families in need, yes, it is giving a win to Democrats, but more importantly, it's giving a win to working families. All right, COVID. Is COVID over? I think everyone else thinks it's over. So about half of eligible Americans have received booster shots, which by the way, I still need to do that. Um, and nearly 80 million, there have been nearly 80 million confirmed infections overall. That must be 80 million. That's so high. Uh, and many more infections have never been reported, right? You have people who, oh, I know I have COVID. I don't need to go take the test. I'm just going to stay home and kind of get through this, right? There's a lot of that. So scientists have been kind of going through these models to see where we are as far as immunity. And the estimate is that 73% of Americans are now immune to Omicron, which is the main variant that's out there right now. And by mid-March, that number could go up to 80%. That is a remarkable amount of the population. I mean, that's almost everyone. So the reality is, of course, yes, people are still dying from COVID. Yes, surgeries and other major medical procedures are being postponed or impacted. You know, I was reading something about uh, an individual who has cancer and how much longer she has had to wait to get her cancer treatments because of COVID. Um, and then what's equally messed up about this is there are a record number of hospital patients that are contracting COVID at the doggone hospital. Um, so given where we are, and you heard me earlier talk about mask mandates, the question for Democrats is how to catch up to where the public is on this 
and where the science is, but doing it in a way that's responsible. And I think we are now kind of moving uh, away from dictating, here's what you will do, to here's what you should do. And then we all just have to suffer the consequences of how people react. All right. To someone that I really don't like to give a lot of oxygen to, but unfortunately I do have to acknowledge him briefly on the pod. Trump, of course. Who did you think I was talking about? All right. So Trump had a bad week last week, um, particularly around legal actions and legal issues. So three things happened. Number one, his White House visitor logs will be given to the January 6th committee. That's the bipartisan group that is investigating the attack on the Capitol. Why is that a big deal? Because it will tell you who was in and out of the White House, particularly leading up to and on the day of January 6th. Another big thing, his accounting firm dumped him and said the tax returns that they compiled were based on false information, basically said that Trump lied to them. Dang. Right. And then another, a judge ruled that Trump and two of his kids, Ivanka and Don Jr., must sit for depositions and provide documents to New York's Attorney General, Letitia James, which you've heard me mention her on the show before. So those are all three very difficult things that he's going to have to deal with. Um, and then one last thing about Trump. Now, all, as all of this is going on, Trump is raising millions and millions of dollars. Some people say it's at the expense of other Republican candidates. So about 22 cents out of every dollar raised through WinRed. Now, WinRed is the Republican payment processing system. The Democratic Party has their own. That's called ActBlue. 22 cents out of every dollar raised on WinRed is going to Trump's two fundraising committees. Now, in the second half of last year, Trump raked in $51 million. Now, these are all small donor, small dollar amounts, right? Small donor uh, impact here. This is exactly what made Obama's campaign so transformative. And it's what made Bernie such a powerful candidate that you had people willing to give five, 10, 15, $20 every month uh, to support their candidate. Now, Trump is also making loads of money on selling merchandise and access. So you know that Trump has endorsed candidates across the country. One of them here is Senate candidate Herschel Walker, who is running against Warnock. Obviously, Herschel has to make it through the primary, but he more than likely will succeed. Now, Herschel's campaign has spent more than $100,000 at Mar-a-Lago already. Now, we're only in February. So Georgia's gubernatorial candidate uh, and former United States Senator David Perdue, he's also going to have a fundraiser at Mar-a-Lago next month in March. Uh, now, this is this alarming? Not really. Uh, to be fair, even at the local level, you do have elected officials and other kind of power brokers who will tell a candidate, well, if you want my support, you need to hire this particular person or this particular firm or support this particular cause. And for Trump, that cause is, of course, Trump. So I think what raises folks' eyebrows about Trump is that he's just so transactional, right? It's very much of me. What am I going to get out of this? Uh, how are you going to make me feel? Now, 
A new CBS poll has found that a majority of Americans don't even want Trump to run for re-election in 2024. Uh, they found that only 35% of all voters that they polled said they want Trump to stand as a presidential candidate, and then a whopping 65% said they would prefer another candidate. I'm curious to see how that impacts Trump's slate of candidates in Georgia because they are all, uh, his slate of candidates are very clear in backing and saying that we are Trump candidates and making that distinction from their other Republican primary opponents. Okay, now on to more interesting things. No more Trump. All right. So if you are a weekly listener, uh, you know I've talked about how the tides are changing and how Democrats need to rethink on how to govern during the pandemic. Um, as I stated just a few minutes ago, everyone's sick of it, even liberals. Yes, even liberals and especially parents. I don't have kids, but I got to tell you, I do feel for parents during the pandemic. It is a lot. Uh, so 2022, this election year, as you've heard me talk about on this episode and in previous episodes, it's all about schools and parents and what's happening in the classroom. So last week, three San Francisco school board members, including the board president, got the boot. They were voted out in a recall election that cost the city almost $9 million to do. Uh, now, the campaign effort to get rid of them, that only cost about $2 million. But to put that in context, most school board races, it only costs candidates about $50,000 to win and run for that, to run and win uh, that school board race. So why did these school board uh, members get kicked out? San Francisco parents and probably the teachers, too, were tired of their kids having to do Zoom school. San Francisco parents and probably the teachers too were just tired of having to do Zoom school. Now, the outcome wasn't terribly a, a surprise. The school board got kind of stuck on wokeism, um, but they fumbled the attempt at wokeism. One of the things they tried to do, rename 44 schools, and these were including schools that were named after Presidents George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. Very bizarre. But what really did them in is they removed merit-based entry into one of the district's most prestigious schools. So instead, they changed it from merit-based to ensuring that students from certain census tracts with lower test scores were given the priority. Complete change. This pissed off, in particular, Asian-American parents. It's kind of similar to what we've been talking about on the show about what's happening in Harvard and at other Ivy League schools. In fact, one of the school board members, school board members who got recalled, said Asian Americans upset about switching the school from a merit-based system to a lottery system were acting like white supremacists for not caring about black students. That was absolutely a terrible thing to say. Uh, so... Now, you remember last year, California had a recall election. Republicans were trying to get rid of the Democratic governor, Gavin Newsom. That was a colossal failure, and Republicans completely failed. Uh, this recall was nothing like that. It was a diverse group of parents and people that were out for blood. The president of the Chinese American Democratic Club, he said this, 
we are losing faith in government. Another interesting thing that happened, voters who requested Chinese language ballots, they turned out nearly 40% higher than they did in the last election. And I should also point out that non-citizen parents were allowed to vote. In San Francisco, they passed a law in 2016 that allows parents who are not citizens but do have students and kids in that district to vote in school board elections, which I, I thought that was kind of interesting. So there's a lot of question about what's to learn in this and does this mean that Democrats are are screwed and you know they're they're not uh, this whole notion of wokeism is is killing them. I mean, yes, but ultimately, the question is, how do you govern in a way that is adaptive to things that are happening on the ground? I just told you that a number, 70-something percent of the American population is now immune, has the immunity to the Omicron variant. So think through, okay, now that I know this, how am I going to change and govern? And the other thing is merit base is there for a reason. Now the question is, how do you supplement merit-based to ensure that kids from those other census tracts that do have lower test scores but have the capacity to earn better test scores, give them the tools to do that. Changing the the system and saying, okay, we're going to change this, that I think is where you get into a problem. And again, this is also why Harvard is in the middle of a very big lawsuit about this as well. Okay, next on the list. Okay, so you guys know I'm always trying to look to see what's happening in other cities and states that might be worth looking at in Atlanta or in Georgia. So public banks is something that I've been looking at lately. The state of North Dakota has a public bank. Philadelphia is now poised to become the first city in the country to have a public bank. Uh, What is a public bank? It is a bank that is controlled and principally funded by a government body instead of private investors. So the governing body for that bank, which would be that city or state or county, they deposit all their revenue, taxes, fees, everything they get into their bank instead of going to putting all that money in like Bank of America, Wells Fargo, whoever they use now. Um, And then they can also borrow from that bank, right? So they can borrow based on what they have inputted. Now, this isn't a new thing. This is just not, this is just new to America. Globally, about 20% of banks are publicly owned. Uh, Now, the point of this public bank that Philly is looking at doing is to help entrepreneurs and provide financial services for neighborhoods in need. It's to help people get access to credit. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, she has come out in support of establishing a public bank in Massachusetts. And there's also a public banking act that's in the uh, in the D.C. that representatives Rashida Tlaib and AOC have proposed to make it easier for public banks to exist and would give them seed money to start. I think public banking could be of interest in Atlanta as we're having this conversation around housing access and security and affordable housing. Can you imagine one of the big hurdles uh, that developers developers say and the reason why they can't build the type of affordable housing they want to is because the banks won't cooperate. 
Well, in this case, if the public bank, the bank that you're going to is the city, then perhaps that can uh, get across that hurdle. Okay, so now we've talked in, I think, last week's episode about the truckers in Canada and that whole thing, if you've been following it, these truckers in Ottawa shut down uh, the state, this, the capital. They refused to leave. I mean, this was literally trucks and trucks and trucks, like semi-trucks, all types of trucks. <laughs> so we talked about how this crowdfunding company, Gibson Go, said that they were going to defy Canadi uh, the Canadian court order and still find a way to give monies raised in support of the truckers to the truckers. But something interesting happening, and I'm bringing it up because I think it should prompt a question about civil liberties. So Canada's national police, kind of think of them as a, maybe our national guard, they are sending to banks, private banks, the names of people who were involved in the protest. Why? Because Prime Minister, Can Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, invoked an emergency law that requires Canada's financial institutions to determine whether they are in control of the property of a demonstrator or someone helping a demonstrator. If they are, they are required to freeze that person's assets and report it to intelligence agencies. <laughs> I'm not an attorney, but I got to tell you, I totally raised my eyebrow on this one. You know, there's a lot, it just brings up a lot of questions. How long are those bank accounts locked for? How does the good government determine when or if it will unfreeze your accounts? Um, now, do I agree with what the truckers are protesting? Probably not, but okay, they're protesting vaccine mandates and mask mandates, right? What's the bar for the next protest? Uh, you know, and how likely is this to happen in the United States? When I think about 2022 and how folks went to protest, that there, there's a question there of what is the government, if you are the government and you are trying to get rid of truckers or protesters or whoever, is freezing their accounts an acceptable way of doing it? Again, I'm not a lawyer. I don't work for the ACLU, but I do think it's a debate that we should be having. End of the show. It's here. Party poopers, party starters. Turn out the lights. The party's over. The party is over. Close the gates. What? All right. Party's over. Everyone go home. Are you sure you want to invite this party pooper to poop on your party? I'm the party pooper. My party pooper award for this week goes to, this should not surprise you based on the topics of today's episode, uh, politicians and others who are weaponizing issues for political gain, even though the majority of Americans have an opposing point of view. What am I talking about here? So Quinnipiac uh, National Polling just, just issued some results. 66% of those polled said that what they were taught in school fell short of a full and accurate account of the role of African-Americans in the United States. Another, nearly eight in 10 Americans say efforts to ban certain books in schools and libraries is more about politics than it is about the content of the books. And then lastly, 
Eight in 10 Americans think that the tensions around the COVID-19 mask uh, mandates and vaccines has more, again, to do with politics than it does science. So again, my party pooper of the week goes to politicians and others who keep weaponizing these issues that the majority of Americans already agree with. Let's get it started in here. Oh, I'm the party starter. So for party starter, I was racking my brain trying to figure out who could be a party starter, maybe because the elected officials just haven't done anything worth celebrating. I don't know. Um, But I'm going to use this time to highlight uh, a dear friend who passed away. We had the um, celebration of life for him on Friday. His name is Larry Dingle. If you are an in the know Atlanta political, you probably have heard of Larry Dingle passed away at 72. He was a uh, zoning and land use attorney in Atlanta. And what made Larry really special is uh, he was also a former police officer. Um, I think he was like one of the first black police officers in Atlanta, if I'm not mistaken. But what made Larry special is you could be the mayor of Atlanta. You could be me. I met him when I was like 21, I think green as I'll get out, didn't know, didn't know anything about the world. Right. And then you could be a billionaire and no matter who you were, he was going to treat you the same. Uh, and that just says a lot about his character. Uh, and that's just something that I think we can all learn from that. The content of your character is what matters most. Uh, and it's not about what can you do for me or how much money do you have? Or who do you know? Who do you support? And so I just really appreciate uh, having that time and experience with Larry. So Larry Dingle and the Dingle family, you all are my party starters of the week. That's it for the show. Have a wonderful week. Don't forget to subscribe if you don't already. Like, give us five stars. Give us a, a great review. Send the show to your friends and family and others. Uh, If you've got something you want me to talk about on the show, send it to me via DM. I think you can do that on Twitter or Instagram. As always, thank you for listening. Have a good one. (laughs) 